0: Welcome back to the Clinical Athlete Podcast. You might notice we got some new music to start the show. If you love it, if you hate it, let us know. Email us at info at with any feedback. We'd love to hear it. If you're not familiar with Clinical Athlete, we're a network of healthcare providers, students and coaches who specialize in the management of athletes. You can find your nearest clinical athlete provider at clinicalathlete.com. We also have the Clinical Athlete Forum, where we discuss and share ideas and resources related to athlete health and performance. To join the forum or for a potential listing on the Clinical Athlete Directory, and for all upcoming seminars, webinars, and events, details can be found on the website. If you enjoy this show, do us a favor and give it a rating on your favorite podcast platform so that we can get the info out to as many people as possible. My name is Quinn Hennick. I'm a doctor of physical therapy in Orange County, California at Clinical Athlete Newport. On this show, we are joined by co-host Jared Maynard, who is the clinical athlete, continuing education director and coordinator, and a physiotherapist at Depth Physiotherapy in Waterloo, Ontario, Canada. He is also a strength coach and runs an online powerlifting coaching company and is a competitive powerlifter himself. And we have our other co-host, John Flagg, who is an athletic trainer and the powerlifting, weightlifting, and strongman coach at 301 Strong in White Plains, Maryland, and the owner of Rebuild Stronger, an online coaching platform for... For strength athletes. He is also a clinical athlete provider and lead instructor of the clinical athlete powerlifting certification. And we have a special guest, Jacob Manley. Jacob is an athletic trainer, a physical therapist, and a performance coach at Pro Physical Therapy in Winchester, Virginia. He received his bachelor's degree in kinesiology with a focus in sports medicine at the University of Virginia before entering the dual master in athletic training training and doctorate of physical therapy program at Shenandoah Valley University or Shenandoah university. While in grad school, Jacob completed numerous clinical rotations, including rehab in the clinic as well as on-field coverage for sporting events. His clinical rotations allowed him to work with collegiate and professional athletes at Exos Gulf Breeze, as well as spend the 2017 season working as an athletic training student intern with the Washington Redskins. He brings this experience to the sports performance programs at pro And additionally, Jacob is a graduate of Shenandoah University's Performing Arts Medicine Program, where he studied to specialize in rehabilitation for dancers and musicians, which is actually what we're going to be talking about on this show, which is rehab and training for the performing arts. It's a really interesting topic and one that we haven't really hit on on the podcast, and we hope you enjoy it.
1: Jacob Manley, welcome to the Clinical Athlete Podcast. Thanks, Quinn. I'm I'm a a long-time listener. Uh, I was back on the the forums in the Wild West days where there were no laws, and Derek Miles and Michael Ray would just beat you with the truth (laughs) stick all the time. Yes. I'm I'm glad to be on the show. Good. We're we're proud
0: to have you, man. Uh, So we are going to talk about something that we haven't really talked about on this show, which is training for the performing arts athlete. But it's a really interesting topic, actually. And before we dig into it, because it's relevant to the conversation, Jacob, can you tell our, I'm going to say five listeners, because if you're one of the six, then that means you're on the show. Six minus one is five. So we have five listeners currently. Can you tell our five listeners kind of where you are, your, your background as a physical therapist, where you are currently in your career, and what's, what's led to some of your interests in dealing with the performing arts athlete?
1: Uh, yeah. So I, I mean, do you want me to get on the couch? Do I need to like lay down? Is this like a, I want, you to,
0: I want you to feel comfortable.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, well, the performing arts kind of fell into my lap in, in a sense. Uh, I was going to Shenandoah university for a dual degree in, uh, a master's in athletic training and a doctorate in physical therapy. And I was trying to pick clinicals that were outside of my comfort zone, something that I wasn't used to. Because my background is pretty much just powerlifting, wrestling, football, strongman. And that was the type of athlete that I was used to interacting with. And when I was in grad school, the director of our athletic training program, uh, Rose Schmieg, her and some of the other clinicians that work at Shenandoah started a performing arts medicine program. And it was a two-year graduate certificate to kind of focus on working with Uh, ballet, musicians, jazz, tap, modern, ice skaters, martial artists, kind of anything that would fall outside of the traditional athletic realm that's more of a performing art. And um, part of that was because the the Shenandoah itself has a really big conservatory, and they're known for their musical programs and their dance programs. And it developed as a need for them to serve the students uh, here at the university. And they decided to turn that into a graduate program. And I was very hesitant because I had already started. I did I did PT for a year, and then I added in athletic training. And so I was kind of hesitant to add a third program on, just because there's a lot of course credits, more student loans, stuff like that. And instead, I tried to set up a, a unique clinical experience where I could work in the dance athletic training room to see if it would count for my PT part-time clinical. And so every Tuesday for, I don't know, 10 weeks or so, I would go do a split clinical and go work at the hospital for about six hours. And I'd come over to the training room at Shenandoah and work with the dancers for about three, did some backstage coverage, um, really just kind of found a niche. Like I, I really liked the people that I worked with. It was so vastly different than the population that I would, I was used to treating and, um, they kind of just guilted me into the program. So Rose and Michelle were just like, hey, you know, this is a good fit for you. It's only another 12 credits. You should totally take this opportunity and just like learn a little bit more about this population. And so going into my third year of PT school, I was like, what the hell? I'll just add on a third program. And so did that, finished out. Uh, still kind of thought that I was gonna go more of like the traditional, like, you know, ATPT, like pro sports, just like every other, you know, sport physical therapy student that's out there. And um, did a clinical at Exos, did a clinical with uh, the Redskins. And then my last PT clinical was uh, at Pro Physical Therapy in Winchester, which is the same town that Shenandoah is in. And um, they liked me, it was a good fit, and uh, they offered me a job. And it's been a really, really rewarding experience because it's a really good environment for me to kind of grow some unique skill sets and are... Our owner is really, really, really passionate about just kind of growing you as a clinician and figuring out what you're passionate about and trying to foster that. And uh, just from there, I've been able to take advantage of some unique opportunities and get a little bit more involved with Shenandoah and just do more stuff with the dance world. And so I guess it was end of October, I did a presentation at the International Association of for Dance Medicine and Science, or IADMS. Up in Montreal, and then just gave a little spiel on uh, kettlebell training for for dancers. So, and it was probably a little bit long-winded, but it's been a interesting process to kind of end up here.
0: What are some of the unique challenges that you face, or are there, with when it comes to the dancing population? When we look at them in the lens of of an athlete versus Ooh. if you were if it was a basketball player or a football player or a soccer player or something like that.
1: So I think the first thing is that athletic identity, most dancers are not going to like it if you refer to them as an athlete. They're a dancer, they're a musician, they're an artist. And I think that's one of the big stigmas that you see is just this notion that even though dance is incredibly physically demanding, that it's the separate entity from the realm of athletics. And so when you look at local studios, local companies, they're not thinking of necessarily thinking of dancers as an athlete or someone that's doing, uh, you know, they're not really thinking about like programming or dare I say it, periodization or anything like that. They're just thinking about dance. And so and a lot of times now, this is my opinion. I don't know that I can back this up with like hard data, but the vast majority of what I've seen and kind of like the the vibes that I get in this community mm-hmm. is that, in order to get better at dance, you have to dance more, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas if we look at athletics, a lot of times it's not necessarily, you know, doing more of that particular skill set. Like certainly there's a a large chunk of technical work that you need to do to to progress that skill. But a lot of times we're looking at other methods or other other pathways to improve your overall athleticism or presence on the field or court. Whereas dance is kind of this singular mindset of just we have to dance more. We need to stretch more. We need to do you know, more plies or more crunches or, or things like that. And so I think the, the notion of identifying as an athlete is a really big stigma. And then I think a lot of the things that come along with that are also really tough, um, especially when you talk about strength training, because ballet in particular is incredibly aesthetically demanding. And so it has this very you know beautiful look of like long lean lines where everything has to be a specific way. And if you introduce strength training, the the first thing that people freak out about is getting bulky, right? There's this whole notion of just I'm gonna get too bulky, I'm not gonna look good on stage. And that is just that's a huge, huge stigma that you have to fight.
2: Would you say that's similar to the transition over the last few years that endurance sports has seen, especially like high level marathon running or cross country type environments where this, the early on, the strive was always for lighter athletes, right? Light, 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 so that you could run faster. Um, strength training wasn't a big focus. It wasn't something that was really brought in until really more recently. And then when we look at the training, it was always, well, just run more, is, is what you always kind of heard. Well, if you want to get faster at a 5K or you want to run a marathon, you just have to run more. And we've seen the endurance community start to embrace strength training as a means for increased performance. You see an increase in lean body mass, which is actually functional weight, um, and and not uh, seeing an increase in time and and, and that sort of thing. And overall, healthier athletes, because of that resistance training, do you see that as as being a similar path and there's still – kind of struggling with that or are they starting to make strides in the same direction?
1: I mean, I definitely think that there are a lot of corollaries with that. And I think you could even take that back to football too. If you look at like the inception of strength and conditioning coaching in the world of college football, I mean, everybody thought that if you lifted weights, you're going to get too muscle bound and you weren't going to be athletic. Right. And then Nebraska started, started training people and they just punched people in the mouth when they were on the field. Um, but, but yeah, to go along with the kind of the path that you see with endurance athletes, I think when you look at the top level of performing arts, so like when you look at Cirque, Cirque is a massive international company. They have tons of, I think I want to say they have close to 1500 or 2000 performers that work with them worldwide. And I want to say on average, they're running about 25 different shows between, Vegas, Montreal, uh, DC, New York, different, uh, cities in, in Europe. And they, they provided this huge presentation, uh, for us at the Adams conference. And it was actually really refreshing to see because they hired an epidemiologist about two or three years ago and brought him in and tried to do, um, just start collecting data on injury risk. Uh, you know, what's, What's happening to our performers? Who's getting injured? How are they getting injured? What's the time loss of injury? And then using all of that data, extrapolating it, and then trying to, to bring on like modern um, stress science and strength and conditioning literature to help them, to try to find ways to mitigate uh, injury risk. And I want to say they were able to bring their, I may be misquoting them slightly, but I, I think that they were able to bring their injury, injury uh, numbers down to like less than one or seven per thousand exposures which was pretty crazy down from like it was already low to begin with but they were able to get it down pretty low and so i mean you're, you're seeing a lot of that stuff take off at the higher levels so like the bigger companies that have a strength and conditioning coach um like the royal ballets in like london or australia or whatever um they have they have a staff the houston ballet has a strength and conditioning coach and they work with the the dancers. But when you look at like local companies and, and collegiate programs, they're still way behind as far as like breaking through that aesthetic barrier, breaking through the weight barrier, all the, the old misconceptions about, um, especially when it comes to, to females in, in resistance training. There's just so much stigma that needs to be changed at the local community level as well as at the collegiate level. Um, and I think there's, it's, it's happening, but it's happening very slowly. And I think that there's a little bit of a drop off between what the people or the individuals at the, high, the higher levels like the circus are doing. Uh, I think people see that, but they're not really sure how to implement that at a local level.
0: If we break down the performing or the a ballet dancer or performing arts athlete, and we'll just, just call them athletes for, our, for the sake of the, of the conversation here. Cool. What physical attributes are we talking about?
1: Uh, I mean, it's always going to be dependent on their specific, um, skill set, right? So performing athlete can be a whole variety of things. When you, when you talk about a a company like Cirque, it could be a clown, right? Like a clown that's doing juggling across stage for the whole performance is going to have much different demands than the aerial trapeze artists or a ballerina that's coming across the stage. Um, in ballet in particular, which I think is probably the, the art form that most of us would think of when we talk about performing arts, at least like in a PT community, I feel like ballet is the thing that comes up quite a bit. And, um, I mean that, the, the norms for like a, a ballet dancer on like hamstring length, they're supposed to be like, you know, 115 to 120 or something like that. So you're looking at, and I know, I know norms, right? Because there is no real normal; it's just kind of like arbitrary goniometric measurements. But um, the flexibility demands are just way, way more than what you would expect a normal person to have. Um, and it's it's in it's like hamstrings. You're talking about you know extreme levels of plantar flexion to be able to, to achieve point. So I think most ballet dancers typically start point work around 10 years old. Mm. There's been a push. Uh, you see companies like or institutions like the Harkness Center in New York um, that try to put out point readiness screens and, and criteria for being able to progress into point work. A lot of it has to do with strength, but sometimes it's just some companies just use age. But typically, you're going to see a dancer going to point about 10 years old. And in order to do that, you have to have like 90 degrees of plantar flexion. Like you need to be able to get your talus like straight in line with your tibia, so that you can balance up on the toe box and the shoe. And it, it's just it's little things like that that are specific to that particular art form that make it more challenging. And I think you really need to have a understanding of like what the norms, are, what the expectations would be, what instructors are going to be looking for, what ballerinas are going to be looking for, in order to like properly rehab them. And I don't think it's anything that's too challenging. I think that if anybody looks into looks into it or tries to, tries to do research, I mean, you can certainly learn uh, terminology and skill sets and and start to understand progressions because I think they're very similar to anything else that we would we would rehab um, or program for. But it's just a it's like little things that you don't really think about, you know, like an ankle sprain coming back for a basketball player is way different than it would be. For someone that needs to do a point piece in the nutcracker, you know, if they're going to be in full plantar flexion on that ankle for five minutes, it's way more challenging than it is to just run up and down a court with your ankle taped.
0: When we talk about strength training and the possible implications or the importance of strength training to either mitigate risk or as an important component of the rehab scenario in this population. What qualities is strength training then giving? What would be the benefit of of resistance training in some capacity in this population who may not see that type of training being of benefit to them?
1: I mean, there, so there is some literature out there that it is dance-specific that suggests that with increased strength training, you're going to see increases in performance outcome measures Um, there's some preliminary stuff that talks about increases in confidence and that actually, um, there was one study, I think it's waiting to be published, but they, they actually had an independent panel look at, uh, dancers and assess them on a piece of choreography. And then they did, I think like a 10 or 12 week resistance training program. And then they assessed them on the same piece of choreography. And certainly there are some like other variables at play and it wasn't the most perfectly done study, but, it was interesting because that panel rated their aesthetic that showed that they had aesthetic improvement, technical improvement, um, and you know, all these other performance outcome measures. So we see stuff like that. We see there's some stuff on uh injury reduction, like uh rates going down. We see things increase like vertical jump height or um you know power measures. But I think the problem is that when you look at the dance subset you don't see as much research as you do with the rest of the athletic population so a lot of it you have to kind of like apply or or just kind of like find ways to use that information and and make it apply more towards the dance population because there's really just not a lot of buy-in when it comes to strength and conditioning stuff like as a whole that's you pick up a barbell or you suggest somebody picks up a dumbbell and they like they go running no one, no one wants to do that. And it's just, it's this big fight, right? Like, we have the data that shows it. People know that we have the data. We talk about the data all the time. It, uh, you see it in the Journal of Dance Medicine and Science. When I was at the iadams conference, people were talking about it, you know, all the time that, like, we, these are things we need to do. You constantly see um, deficits in cardiovascular capacity or strength and conditioners, just strength levels. Those are always identified as as things that need to improve, but nobody really does anything for it. It's just at the end of a class, we'll do like some, some body weight plies or squats or we'll do some crunches. And that ends up becoming like the standard of what strength training is for like your local company.
2: When I think of performing arts and I, I start thinking of metrics here, we talked about ballet and you can also talk about you know, some theater shows that involve a ton of dance. Like the first, the first two things I think of is how many times they bound. So we, we track jumps in basketball. Mm-hmm. Like how many times do they leave the ground and return? They bound countless times and then distance traveled. So we, we, we track with GPS units, uh, soccer teams and, uh, rugby teams and stuff like this. Those are, those are things that you have to conceptualize when we start talking about this stuff. And it might be a way to say, Hey, look, you're, you're traveling eight miles during the course of one of your shows and you're bounding 68 times per number. Like we, we need to look at what just a basic strength training and plyometric program could do for you in regards to being prepared for that. Instead of just like, okay, more practice, more practice, more practice, because obviously, you know, sport practice and and skill development is of obvious importance. Like that's you have to practice your sport. You have to practice your skill or your choreography, however you want to frame it. But we also have to be prepared for practice. And if you're going to be traveling miles during a show, then it's probably best that we put on some miles outside of dance.
1: Am I off base on that? No, no, I, I dude, I com- I completely agree with you, John. I think what an interesting challenge that that often comes up within the the practice part of the of ballet in particular is that classes are not structured in the same way their performance is. Right. So when you go into a ballet class, most of the time it's gonna consist of some sort of warm-up. Sometimes it has a moving piece to it where they go through like some plies, um chasse's i'm just going to say a bunch of dance words basically they they do a bunch of like lateral movements as well as you know bounding leaping jumping type stuff um there's like 15 different ways to say jump in ballet It's, it's kind of annoying and i have to remember uh no but i can do i can do some turnout in different positions for you later if you need to see that we can do that off camera um but the way that most classes are structured is they have, they'll have a warm up and then they'll go to the bar. So they'll do a lot of like um, kind of balance work with different gestures, uh, kicks, and stuff like that, like where they have the bar to stabilize them or to, to kind of like give them something to have some sort of balance aid. Then they'll do some sort of center work, which is they're going to do movements, uh, jumps, partner work without the aid of the bar. But regardless of what part that they're on, they typically only do, you know, maybe 8, 16 or 32 counts of a particular movement. So they're basically taking a chunk of choreography and only rehearsing that particular chunk. So it's like they're going to work on, you know, this chunk of it for 30 seconds, this chunk for 30 seconds, this chunk for a minute. And they're going to practice all of those pieces individually. And so they may not put together a whole string of choreography until tech week or or show week. So you're basically looking from like a metabolic standpoint. You've got all these rehearsals and practices that are like, you know, like your your phosphocreatine or like low level um, pathways. And then you go into tech week and they haven't done any sort of like cardiovascular preparedness. And now they're doing like a 15 minute piece from start to finish in a costume. Right. So you have all the demands of, like, extra weight because of, like, a costume thing. You've got props that they have to, like, move around or incorporate on stage. And then they're doing, like, a full piece. And so it's when you think about, like, prepping for that full piece, there isn't – it seems like sometimes there isn't a lot of thought until, like, actually preparing the the athlete for the demands of that, right? Because it seems kind of backwards. Like, if you're only going to practice, like, 32 counts of something – over and over and over and over and then they have a whole bunch of breaks it's almost like you're running like like a like a football practice you know you're you're doing like eight seconds of work 10 seconds of work 15 seconds of work short bouts of of exertion and then you're resting and then you learn a new piece of choreography and you're practicing over and over over, versus like actually stringing the whole piece together
3: You, you talked about the the stigma and the resistance to the idea of strength training, um, when it comes to energy systems and conditioning, is there the same stigma as far as trying to improve conditioning overall, or is that a little bit more of an easy sell?
1: I think the, the word that you'll hear dancers use more often is like is cross-training. I feel like that's the most like dance acceptable term. Um, there's much less stigma, in my opinion, to cardiovascular activity then there would be to resistance training. Mm -hmm. But then there's also, even when you get into resistance training, it depends on how they're classifying resistance training, because there's certainly some dancers that are going to go to Planet Fitness and use a bunch of, you know, exercise equipment. They might do a chest press, they might do bicep curls, they might do leg press. And so they're certainly doing resistance training, but there may not be the intention or the plan to do something at more maximal loads, Mm -hmm. you know? I think a lot of them with Instagram culture, the way it is with fitspo, the way it is uh, there's probably a whole bunch of people that just do a lot of like, you know, 30 or 40 rep, like two pound pink dumbbell exercises because that's what they see. And so I think, I think some of it is like access to educational information. Um, who Who's disseminating information to the dancers, like what it is that they're looking for as far as like, from an aesthetic standpoint, from a performance standpoint. And um, I think you have like all these variables and factors that kind of go into that. So I think cardio becomes easier for them because it's not as like scary. I think a lot of times there's, there's confusion on how to do barbell movements safely, especially within that population. Cause it's something that's so different than anything that they've ever done their entire life. And it's not like you're going to walk into a traditional studio and see a barbell or squat rack. Mm -hmm. um and i'm sure that if parents brought their eight-year-old kid in and they saw like i mean if i had a studio i'd have like six squat racks in the back but like you know what are the parents going to say when they bring their eight-year-old daughter in to do intro to ballet class and half the studio is taken up with by squat racks it's going to be kind of intimidating to that population and so i think you see people do more cardio but but again I, i don't know that there's always that intentional plan out on how to improve things like vo2 max or different outcome measures it's just oh i went to the gym and i'm going to do 20 minutes of elliptical and that's it
3: if you want to studio how many fridges would have chobani products in them uh
1: am i allowed to like can i can i talk about my
2: Trebani sponsorship on here is there like well I mean, Quinn said we only have five listeners, but because of your expansive yogurt influencer, you <laughs> probably have like oh, a million right now.
0: <laughs> we're actually looking I for mean, we're looking for podcast sponsors, so go, go go for it, man.
1: I mean, if I had if I had a choice, like I would, I'd have as many Chobani fridges as Chobani would give me. You know, I've talked to their uh, social media intern. I'm assuming she's an intern, and uh, you know, maybe wrong of me to assume uh, Jennifer, who has sent me multiple cards with uh, coupons on the inside of them. And I've asked for a yogurt fridge. I feel like I'm up there with Terry Cruz. I don't know why he gets one. And I don't, um, I feel like I've brought them more business from handing out yogurt coupons in the past several months than Terry Cruz has by being on Brooklyn nine, nine, but it's neither here nor there. Um, but probably six to seven, it depends on the, the space Jared. Um, but I think six would be a good number. Um, because you need to have at least four for the main flavors that come in the Costco multi-packs and then probably two for seasonal varieties. Um, and then maybe, you know, one of them for just larger tubs of yogurt. I appreciate the thought you put into
0: that. Yeah. I'm still on the Noosa train. Noosa is where it's at for me.
1: We can't all be perfect.
2: Noosa hooked me up. (laughs) Look at that. (laughs) Empty. Empty. (laughs) I'm still waiting for my monster sponsorship. So see, that's dangerous, out
0: man. Time. that's wow. dangerous. But uh, right here, Jake, you sent us some. Pa- yeah, I, I see it. You sent us some papers to prep for this, and I liked there. Were, I'm going to butcher these these names, but the I'll link all these in the show notes anyway. But the um, Stracciol—shit, <laughs> it's like Italian. <laughs> Straciolini, 2016 was was a yep. cool. It was a nice commentary and kind of a. Uh, listing out specific myths. A couple of them we've already talked about. This paper was in reference to adolescent females, in particular, dancers. Mm-hmm. And it kind of you know debunking resistance training being unsafe for kids, and that's, that's something that's got some data behind it just in general, resistance training for youth athletes. And then they touched on the um, resistance training resulting in bulky muscles, when even especially with adolescents, they're not hormonally – they don't have the hormonal profiles to get bulky anyway – even if they wanted to do some type of bodybuilding or hypertrophy, it's much harder for a prepubescent kid to get bulky. So, resistance training is you get those neural components. And obviously, the way that you train, you can get strong without getting bulky. So, I really like that paper. But there were a couple others that talked about what you touched on the Kutadakis paper, 2004. I want mean, to say it's Kutadakis. I mean, okay. All right. Yeah. Twitch it 2009. Did I get that one right? I think so. Okay. Well, both both of those papers they talk about what's important for a lot of athletes is that this the difference between the skill and the fitness qualities that are inherent in in the in the sport, in the skill itself. So, dancing helps you to develop the skill, but especially the way that you just described how the practice is, a quote-unquote practice, how it's structured you're not developing that's, – that's a limited stimulus to develop the fitness adaptations that either augment the skill or mitigate risk or prepare for performance perspective, which duck, dovetails into a question that I had for you. Do you clinically see more injuries during show week or at a performance at a show versus over the course of just kind of normal day-to-day training?
1: So it's going to depend on how you classify injury. If you're looking at time loss, I mean, I've only seen such a limited subset with like kind of like one university and only like periodically when I'm helping backstage and stuff like that. But I would say in general, what happens is if you look at their, their kind of like general GPP levels, right? Like, I mean, they're, they have a general level and then all of a sudden tech week comes and their demands go up so high that like everybody is everybody's on edge, everybody's freaking out. So you have this psycho, this whole like psychological component where costumes have to fit, like they got to do last-minute mm. changes to that. Unforeseen things are gonna happen with stage direction and stage management. And so they're trying to get all that stuff down. But then you have this massive spike in acute activity. And if you have people that have already been nagging something or like nursing something throughout the the whole season, more often than not, it's gonna come to come out to play during tech week. So working backstage, like during a weekend uh, concert, dude, I'll be back there and people will be coming. It depends on the show and depends on what, what night it is typically. But usually people start coming out of the woodwork that are just like my back hurts. This starts bothering me, you know, my hips bothering me. And more often than not, I would, I would attribute that to that acute spike in, in uh, activity and, and demands for what they need to do.
0: Can this be, I mean, these can be the conversation starters kind of right off the bat as far as education, at least maybe for the, for the athlete, just talking about these things conceptually, maybe to create a little bit of Mm -hmm. buy-in you think, is this kind of where you go from an education standpoint? If you're working with this type of person, like maybe say in the clinic, when you've got some actual time to see them through a, a rehab process, are you spelling it out like this?
1: I try to as much as I can. Um, I, you know, to a nod to like the, our level up people that are always talking about using whiteboards, um, I end up just kind of using their folder or piece of paper, but more often than not, we'll draw like a little picture of, you know, performance demands and like maybe what their, where their physical level is, you know, all estimation just for like a visual representation of it. Um, but then we'll kind of do like a needs assessment and list out, you know, what it is that you need to accomplish the task that you're trying to do. Um, most of the dancers that I've seen, at least clinically, you're looking at more often than not either hip knee or ankle issues. Um, those are lower body stuff is more common than upper body stuff. Uh, unless you're talking about other types of dance that are going to involve more like inversions or more prop use, then you might, then shoulder, shoulder and back will come more into play. Um, but a lot of it just comes down to like you would do with any other athlete. Like, what is it that you're trying to do? How do we, you know, kind of back that down, scale it down, figure out what you can do, figure out what your deficits are and how do we just address all of that stuff and try to optimize you for where you need to be. And so that conversation is going to change depending on if it's an eight-year-old versus a 15-year-old or a collegiate dancer. Um, it's going to depend on... A lot of it's gonna depend on parents, what they have access to, you know, what kind of equipment that they have, what they feel comfortable with, what their stigmas are. Um, because a lot of times those first couple of days are having rough conversations for them. Um, explaining, you know, like what my background is, what we need to do, the interventions that we're probably gonna use. And, you know, I may phrase it like, well, I don't know how to how to say this like eloquently. But if it's someone that's adverse to weight training, trying to have a conversation to ease them into it. And I think for, the, for me personally, I like using kettlebells a lot with the dance population because more often than not, it's something that they've never seen before. So it's a novel stimulus. Mm-hmm. It's still a pretty heavy weight for them more often than not. And it's an easier way to, to introduce them to like, you know, your hip hinges and your squats and stuff like that. In a in a context that seems safer, because so many of them are just so adverse to barbell movements, and m- I treat in a gym, so I'll go back and bring them to the table that's in the gym, and you know, f- ten feet away from us is a four or six port like rogue rack with a whole bunch of barbells on it, and you know, I mean that's what they see and they look at me half the time that when I go out to to greet a dancer, like the parents are like, who the hell's this guy? Like, why is this the dance guy at this clinic? (laughs) Because I'm like way bigger than, than what they would expect. And, um, we go back and I I always just try to ease them into that training conversation because there's, there's oftentimes so much resistance, so much stigma, um, especially in younger kids. And so that's why to me, like kettlebells are awesome for that population, because it's just a novel, it's a novel stimulus. It's something that they've more often than not never seen before. And it, it's a way to make it more comfortable for them. So feel like yeah. I kind of like repeated myself a whole bunch, but that's okay.
2: Now that the, When you first mentioned that, that structure, the practice structure, the first thing I thought of was the anxiety. Like the, I just frame it for me. It's like, okay, John, we're only going to work sets of six on squat all the way up until your meat, And then, we're going to take a heavy single. And I would be, I'd be nervous. I'd be like, I'm not, I'm not ready for this. Yeah. And to think, okay, well, I'm going to, I'm going to section this out. And then for tech week, I'm just going to do the whole routine. Like, I you, you, you hear about anxiety and performing arts and that sort of thing. And I could see how that would trigger that, um, you know, a conversation that might be worthwhile is, Hey, look, if we, you give me four weeks before tech week, we're going to do a little bit of extra work and you're going to feel more prepared so you're not going to be so nervous <laughs> like just meet them on that level where it's you can solve a problem for them with something simple and i love the use of kettlebells because they are so flexible they are less intimidating you can use things that are probably more aesthetically pleasing in regards to the performance of them something like a get up Mm -hmm. You might not get, you know, for this population a get up could be enough stimulus for them to get some strength growth. Uh, but it, it probably looks more, uh, transferable to them than a barbell deadlift or, you know, swings or something that you can make or a a good kettlebell snatch will probably look, it, it has the look of that sort of flow
1: for them. So I love, I love that use, but. I think one of the, one of the other things to kind of go along with what you're saying, John is if you can find a way to tie a dance specific um, gesture maneuver or jump to the intervention that you're doing, I think for them hearing something like, okay, in my mind, I'm thinking single leg kettlebell RDL. Right. But on the stage, that's probably going to look like an arabesque. It's basically the same movement. But being able to use their language and relate it back to what you're doing, I think oftentimes like it, it clicks in their brain a little bit more. So like when we talk about squatting and introducing like more parallel stance squat, because most dancers live in turnout, right? They're trying to just jam themselves in as much external rotation as they can possibly get, and so trying to get them more into like a traditional parallel or or like um, what, what we would like a shoulder width squat position, and then kind of like work them into more squats deadlifts and then be able to have that conversation that this is going to help you with plies it's going to help you with vertical jumps it's going to help you with um your saute's jete's anything like that it, being able to speak that language really helps break down some of those barriers yeah you're just thinking sumo deadlift sumo deadlift sumo
2: deadlift. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I mean, well, that's,
1: only, that's only for a wide stance second grand plie jump oh uh, okay
3: yeah, you didn't know that, John.
2: Duh! It's another way to jump, I guess. <laughs> I
3: was just going to say you're you're increasing the salience of what you're doing. We, we talk about it. We've talked about it a lot on the on the show um, with regards to people who want to pick up their kids or be able to get groceries from the car into the house, um, making that connection or trying to make that connection between what we're doing in the clinic with what they ultimately want to do. Um, so I think that it's really useful for for me at least i'll speak for myself to have you as someone who's working with performers people in the arts to tell us about how that how we can make that connection or try to do that with dancers with these artists because i I wouldn't know how well i wouldn't have a great idea otherwise
1: i think i think the the biggest thing is just being able to speak their language um and honestly for me the hardest class i took in grad school was dance terminology Because it was literally, I had to sit there and learn the history of ballet, like all the different types of ballet, which styles had which gestures in it. I had to learn all 15 different ways to say jump, right? Like a a jeté is what we would call like a leap or a bound probably because you're going one foot to one foot but then two feet to one foot has a different name and then one foot to two feet has a different name and then you've got all sorts of different movement combinations um, and like it's it's challenging it's challenging to learn that french i still struggle with it sometimes but i think i know enough of it on a regular basis that when they hear me say that term they go oh this guy knows what he's talking about
3: yeah well just i've had the the pleasure of working with a couple of dancers uh throughout you know, the last couple couple years maybe um and i know maybe three or four terms mm-hmm. but you know plie demi plie grand plie mm-hmm. demi plie a couple mm-hmm. of positions And it's happened where I've had a dancer come in and I've just casually busted them out. I've exhausted my (laughs) vocabulary, but I haven't let on to it, (laughs) but the lights come on. They're like, oh, okay. He knows enough, you know, at least to to start having that conversation, which has been helpful in building that trust and, and getting the communication going back and forth.
2: And that's a moment for me where I don't know any of that. And that's when I just go into a show me. Okay, show me. Yep. I want I I want to understand you. So show me what it is. Uh, if you're in a boot, then let's pull up YouTube. Show me, so that I can get a better understanding of the 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 need that you have. And and I think this is this is great stuff because people are going to start looking this up and and really start kind of looking into it because it's we talked about it before we came on. This is a, a terribly underserved population, and to To help people, you do have to, we talked about it in a previous podcast, have some sort of empathy towards them, which means that you have to take some sort of effort and give a piece of yourself to understand what it is that they need to be able to do. And for us to better serve these individuals, then we have to figure out some of these things that we may not have any knowledge of or at least open the door to them to help them educate us.
1: I think one of the one of the big things when we talk about like show me, um, the big changes that I've started doing is if you're curious about a piece of choreography and just have your dancer go film what they're doing in class. Because a lot of times the, the dancers that I work with, they'll film it anyway because they're trying to practice that combo or that piece of choreography. And so if you can see what the whole class looks like, it makes it way easier when you're trying to figure out what the demands are of that specific piece or routine that they're trying to do and then the other thing would be to actually take a class yourself like trying to intro to ballet class it's way harder than what you would possibly think
0: hey guys quinn hennick here consider this a little brain break from our awesome conversation with jacob manley about rehab for the performing arts we'll get back to that in just a second We wanted to let you know that we will be looking to begin scheduling our 2020 weightlifting and powerlifting certifications. So if you know of a willing facility who would like to host a clinical athlete barbell certification, have them email events at clinicalathlete.com with a subject line of seminar host, and we will send all details when we are ready to set our 2020 schedule. And one more quick announcement, we have recently launched the Clinical Athlete Coaching Program, in which myself, John Flagg, and Jared Maynard are the head coaches. So if you are an athlete or know of any athlete in need of coaching to be able to get back to or surpass their previous performance goals, head over to the clinicalathlete.com website for details. And now back to the show. This is an anecdote, but I, so my experience with working with ballet in particular was my last rotation in PT school, 2013, I was in San Francisco. And so I got to work with some of the San Francisco ballet and some of the schools in the area. And I found that they have the best poker face. I'm like, well, I'm taking them through exercises and I can't tell if it's hard. Like I'm trying to push them and do, and they just, just nothing in their face. I'm like, is this, are you feeling it? Is this working? They're like, Oh Yeah. But there's just like trained, do you experience that too? Just nothing, complete oh, yeah. stoic. Yeah.
1: Especially when you're, when you're trying to figure out if something is like bothering them or not. You know, like, do you have discomfort with this? And they're like, yeah, I'm in eight out of 10 pain right now, but it's cool. I'll do it. <laughs> but I think that that mentality a lot of times comes from the environment that they're in. I mean, yeah. obviously when they're on stage, they have to have a specific presentation. They're always smiling. They're always looking the specific way. Um, because of the aesthetic demands of, of ballet or dance. But when you look at collegiate dancers, th- I mean, this is where it gets different than athletics uh, on, a, on a different end. And that's from, in, an, in a collegiate setting, dance is their, their major, right? If they get hurt, they don't, it's not like they just miss a season or they, they're taking a red shirt. They've got, sometimes they have to withdraw from classes and will have to repeat another semester or another year mm-hmm. in order to graduate so when you're making those return to, to dance or return to play calls, if you're working with collegiate dancers, that's just one more thing that you have to consider because time loss equals, you know, grade loss or loss of, of a class or a semester potentially. And when you, when you have someone that gets like a, a labor repair, I mean, that's automatically almost a, a full year that they have to repeat if they want to go through a, a, and come out with a dance major. Wow.
0: Switching gears a little bit, mm-hmm. i want to you' want to touch on musicians okay because we've i'm curious about this because I equate musician uh, this is going to sound bad initially, but as I equate musicians or the management of such, I almost equate it to somebody who comes in with discomfort who works a desk job where it's they're coming in. Not necessarily into exercise or resistance training or anything. They're coming in, they have a job to do, and it's this repeated thing. And I, my, my management, I can't have them quit their job, but yet that is one of the main triggers. And I've worked with musicians kind of in the same vein. This is my livelihood. It hurts when I play or I'm having troubles doing my job. Are, do you find that that's a difficult thing to manage? If especially if somebody's not necessarily buying in to anything else other than hopefully looking for you to fix them, quote unquote.
1: Yeah, and I think that that's a that's a good corollary to. I mean, I, I don't. I think they would probably take offense to you comparing them to working a desk job. But as far as like the the occupational demands of that specific thing, I think that's a great way of of looking at it. Um, musicians are a little bit they're a little bit different, man. Especially when you get into The higher level musicians and depending on how they're trained they also have a a very old school mentality of no breaks practice for like eight hours a day and because practice is the only way you're going to get better and i mean that because it is such a technical skill i don't know that you could do a bunch of finger extensor work to make your piano playing more effective right? Like you actually do have to practice the technical aspects of that to get better. Um, but you, it, it de- a lot of it depends on on their practice routine, the environmental demands of, of where they're working or where they're playing, um, their particular instructor or mentor or coach, because some of the more, I guess, the, the younger uh, crop of of instructors or people that are, that are teaching lessons tend to advocate more for taking breaks uh, and, and doing things like warming up or doing exercises to enhance your physical capacity to be in that position for so long. Mm. But if you look at the older, the older population, they tend to be very much, you know, I play for five hours straight never take a break. And, and that's one thing I think it, it comes down to just contextual factors of the person that you're working with that's a that's a big thing their practice schedule and then the demands of what they're doing and then it comes down to unique instrument demands as well because piano is very different than clarinet um drumming is very different than playing like the oboe or saxophone and different music different musical instruments have different physical demands right like one of the big things that you see with clarinet players is is thumb ucl sprains, because the weight of that instrument is typically just on the thumb there's a little rest on the back they hold it on their right right or left thumb, depending on their handedness. And you can put, you know, like ergonomic changes, like a neck strap or something to try and help take weight through the rest of your body. But more often than not, the instruments are played a certain way and there are specific demands that, you know, you'd have to be aware of. Um, and I think most instrumentalists or most musicians um, do a good job of like trying to, to stretch or, I mean, I feel bad. I feel dirty saying the word stretch. They try to do something to get themselves out of that position. Right. Cause it comes back to posture. And I think we all, we've, I know I've talked about this with all of you guys probably about like, you know, demonizing posture and we're definitely more, uh, the, the pendulum is definitely swinging away from that. You know, posture itself is not inherently bad, but I think that's, that's a conversation where you have with the instrumentalist you know, all they want to know is posture because they're going to get corrected on their playing posture. They have to sit a certain way when they're in the orchestra. You know, they need to have their shoulders back or their head needs to be up more. Um, And those are things that, and stigmas that you have to break through when you work with them. Um, Changing their practice schedule, making sure they're taking breaks, doing things outside of the specific occupational demands, and then kind of breaking the stigma of of posture because they're so posture obsessed, at least with, with my experience.
0: So this is where I see the, th- the thing with resistance training, not just being about force production. When we talk about the ballet athletes, where I do, so th- you know their demands, they've got high power, short duration, high power outputs, and they've got kind of prolonged power, like five, six minutes maybe in performance where they're having to do jumps. So like force production is an important quality in their sport itself. And for the musician, maybe not so much, but, but now resistance training maybe takes on a different light it's now this novel stimulus that kind of gives them a little bit more quote unquote movement variability. Whereas, I mean, posture, posture does matter. Posture is just a position, right? And so what you're describing is with these musicians, they are, they are in a certain posture for a prolonged period of time. The body may then become sensitized to that posture because sometimes the body just wants novelty, It's one thing to just kind of move around a little bit, like passively get yourself out of that position and do something different. But, you know, my bias says that resistance training is just a stronger stimulus. So I'm just making something up here. But if it's a musician who's forced to kind of be shoulders back, exaggerating that very upright posture, you know, super straight thoracic spine, maybe a seated row. Where you're cueing them to like round out a little bit, like round the thoracic spine at the end of the row, protract the shoulder blades, move through a really full excursion of range of motion. There could be some a novel stimulus to kind of change their that sensory input or you know change how they're feeling. I don't know. I'm just throwing some stuff out there, but it's not always about just the force production when we're talking about benefits of, of novel training modalities.
2: Yeah, no, I I
1: completely agree with that.
2: People always talk about the the best posture is your next posture. We're just really giving them the opportunity to explore different options. Even though you're going to be rigid in regards to performance, outside of that you have to be able to assume different positions and not be in in oboe posture all the time. So just allowing them to explore options and – obviously there needs to be more research, especially in this part of the field, but it could actually increase their capacity to maintain their play posture because they've been able to explore others.
1: Oh yeah, completely agree with that. The same thing for vocalists. Vocalists are another group of um, performing artists that are, it's a very um, posture-heavy occupational demand. And then depending on whether they're in a chorus they're a soloist or they're doing musical theater you have all these other constraints and demands that they have to deal with um but i think when it when it comes down to like musicians posture is like one of the big things that they're going to talk to you about or you should probably ask about to have that conversation because much like you're saying it may maybe they become sensitized in that one position and trying to introduce some sort of novel stimulus helps get out of that but it may also be like what john was saying where you need to we sh- we should probably try to help them build up a physical capacity to be able to maintain that for being able to play through a 3 hour orchestral performance just by getting into other ones. yeah
0: <laughs> my sample size is very small when it comes to working with musicians but i have in the last year or two worked with a few professional musicians and it's it ends up turning into a very general <clears throat> basic strength training program and us Divvying up some of their practice time, Mm -hmm. changing up the volume so that they get up, they end up getting the same amount of work, but maybe in different ways. So instead of getting eight hours on this particular day where you're kind of volume threshold, you start to feel your symptoms around hour four, and then you're just uncomfortable for the next four hours, and then the next day you do nothing, and then you eight hours again we like spread that volume out a little bit throughout the week where it's in more tolerable doses, but they get the same amount of practice. So it's becomes a very similar conversation to training or maybe how, how I would have a conversation with a runner, you know, redistributing their work differently across the week and sometimes make a dent in things, but it's definitely an interesting population to work with.
1: Yeah. It's just, it's, I think when you get, get down to it, it's kind of like a very Greg Lehman-esque um, notion that it's probably similar to just like how just anybody else that you would treat. Um, and when you look big picture, there's really no difference from person to person. You're going to look at um, like a needs assessment. What do they need? What are the demands of what they're trying to do? How do we get you there? But I think it's just the the dare I say nuance of this particular group or the the context that they're in. Um, they just have different training demands and it's a it's a different population and I think the the biggest thing is trying to figure out what it is for their unique task that you need to you know, help facilitate. And so doing things like breaking up practice time to make it more manageable um, so that you're getting the same amount of volume, but you're making it more consistent throughout the week or introducing breaks or you know doing like a set of like rows or scap squeezes or something in the middle of or after you finish a song. Um just something that's very doable for that particular group. Cuz I think again there's there's probably and this may be more of my opinion or what I've seen but I would say more in the, the collegiate and professional um musical world there's probably also an aversion to strength training. Mm -hmm. Um, just because they're so skill-dependent, technical-dependent on their particular task. And a lot of them are, you know, they're practicing five or six hours a day, they're teaching lessons because teaching lessons is often how they make money, and then they're they're playing gigs or they're in an orchestra. And so, you know, sometimes they're working upwards of 60 hours a week when it comes to specific, you know, technical demands of, of being a musician. So... I think it's easy, just like with anything else, to get caught up in the, in the details and to almost have this like paralysis by analysis. Um, but I think if you look more big picture and just try and boil it down to, to that needs assessment and, and how do we dose you back up into, into what you need to do, it makes it way easier.
0: I think this has been great, man. I think that people are going to get a lot out of this. And uh, where, where can people connect with you?
1: Um, so if you want to email me, there's my work email, which is Jmanly at my pro PT.com. Uh, if you're looking to slide into my Instagram DMS, uh, you can find me at, uh, the movement docs Instagram, which I am, you know, I'm wrapping the merch here. You know, all six of our, our followers probably yeah. have a teacher as well. Um, you guys and got a one, podcast you too. Look up, we do. So we started off as a podcast. Uh, Mike and I, I'm actually going to see Mike. After, I'm going down North Carolina to see him after this. But nice. we, when we were finishing up our last years of PT, 80 school, um, we, like many other students on the Instagram and in the social media worlds, we felt, oh, hey, we need to do a podcast or do something to become relevant because this is what... the instagram page with like fifteen thousand followers to be relevant in uh in the pt world so we started a podcast for students about kind of the struggles and um just the day-to-day life that we would experience topics that we had questions about uh started interviewing other other students that we met honestly through the clinical athlete forum like sam and jason and then um just kind of met more and more people from there and now I'm, I'm kind of in my own little echo echo chamber of just PT influencers and social media. So There you go. And well, now it's mostly just memes.
0: <laughs> there was Epic more. Memes. I interrupted you with the podcast, but you were there were more ways to connect with you? After the Instagram oh. slides?
1: Um Yeah, I mean, there's also my personal Instagram, which is not
0: You muted yourself again during the juicy part. I think you're I think you're hitting your mic or something on your chest. Can you hear me? Yes.
1: So So strong. It's that 470 Larson breasts, man. Uh, (laughs) Damn. um, I'm I'm not, I'm not that strong. At least that's what Kevin Cam tells me. Um, There's my, uh, my personal Instagram, uh, not a real doctor deadlift. It's a take on Kyler Wollum's account love it. So, um, and then you can find me on Facebook. I think I'm Jacob P. Manley on Facebook. I would give you my cell phone number, but I don't want don't.
0: to. I mean, it'll only go to uh, six people, but don't do that.
1: No. Don't do that. Buy Chobanis, though, for Jake. Yeah, no, if you, if you message me on, uh, on Instagram, I might send you a free Chobani coupon. Oh, I'm going to slide in yeah. then. A coupon? Yeah, mm-hmm. actually, hold on. Let me... Let me... Here. There they are. Quite a few. Um if you guys send me your address, what? I'll uh I'm telling you, man, my girl Jennifer hooks me up. <laughs> we'll definitely do, do that. Like influencer. I mean I know you like you like uh Noosa, but uh no, Ch- think...
0: bum. I'm no uh I just have a you know have a hierarchy, but As long as it's not like fat-free, plain, anything, I'm good. I just need some flavor. Or it needs to be whole milk.
1: You just can't be like like Deuce Gruden and and have Oikos Triple Zero.
0: Yeah, I have to put some honey in it or something.
1: I don't know how he does it. (laughs) He's a machine. He is. I miss lifting with him, man. That was always fun. We had a blast after breakfast. David Johns.
2: Yeah. Instead. Yep. (laughs)
0: <laughs> Jake, thanks so much for being on, man oh, Thanks for having me on It was uh, a yeah. blast Absolutely, absolutely uh, We will put all those things in the show notes We'll put those four papers of the lead authors Whose names I can't pronounce in the show notes Because they're actually really good reads And um, you know, hopefully it'll be interesting to see what comes out from it Because I think the narrative is going in the right direction It's just about getting some data now On on these particular populations John, thanks for joining us as always.
2: Thank you, Uh, Jared. Good to see you. Yeah,
0: Jared had to skip out. He had to go save some lives, be a real PT. (laughs) Right. But we'll thank him for being on, and, and we'll talk to you guys next time. We'd like to thank Jacob Manley for being on the show. You can check out the show notes for links to the papers that we discussed. And of course, thank you to the homies, Jared Maynard and John Flagg for steering this ship alongside me. And thank you, the clinical athlete community, all six of you for joining us on this journey of knowledge and improved practice in both the gym and clinic. If you want to dive even deeper into this community, you can check out all that the Clinical Athlete Forum has to offer, which includes all of our Clinical Athlete Academy courses, amazing discussions and networking with professional clinicians and coaches, as well as students and just our overall hub of knowledge in regards to athlete health and performance. Thanks, everyone, and we'll talk to you soon.